the parable of the tenants, and uh, we're picking up Matthew 21 in, in verse 33. Hear the word of the Lord. This is Jesus speaking. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out uh, the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. The fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the, his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. Our souls are hungry to hear from you. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to behold wonders in this text. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most interesting insights in the past century uh, for both anthropologists, uh, psychologists, even uh, neuroscientists, is that human beings largely understand themselves and the world in terms of stories. This is true of all cultures. They explain the world through stories, legends, and myths. This is even true of our culture. You might think that that's, you know, it's uh, indigenous kinds of cultures that only have legends and myths. We have our own myth that we live by. So, for example, if you asked, uh, you know, a modern secular person, where did life come from in our world? Of course, course they'll tell you a story. They'll tell you the great myth of evolution. And by saying myth, I don't mean to say whether it's true or false. I'm just saying that it's a grand epic story. The story about that poor little amoeba that was floating around in the ocean all by himself. And against all the forces of nature, the waves crashing down on him, he defied all odds and he multiplied. And he grew fins and he grew gills and he found his way to the land and he pushed out legs to crawl up and blew out nostrils or whatever he did. And then he got up on the land and he stood on his two feet at last like the godlike man who is now the ruler of the whole world. It's an incredible epic story, as we believe. Everyone believes stories. We tell stories. is how we understand the world. 
Now, generally people say that uh, we do this because that's just how humans are. They've evolved to uh, tell stories for some reasons. And actually, you know, one of the things that neuroscientists tell us is the way that you remember things, the way your brain remembers things, is not that your brain is kind of like a basement full of VHS tapes that of all the recordings of everything that your eyeballs saw throughout your life, but what your brain does is weaves together memories into a narrative. You remember and understand your own life in terms of stories. You know, it's when you meet someone for the first time and you're getting to know one another, what do you do? You tell stories about your life. That's how we know, know each other. And what the Bible says is that the reason that we tell stories, the reason our brains remembers in terms of stories, it's not simply because we've evolved that way, the Bible says something far more wild, more thrilling, and yet I think also far more reasonable. That the reason our brains think in stories is because our brains are right. We are actually living in a story. And that's the reason we understand the world that way, is because we are characters in a grand epic story. And we will not understand our lives, we will not understand our world, we won't know how to live unless we know what that story is so that we can play our part right. And so, what story are we living in? Well, um, in these verses that we just read, Jesus essentially tells us the story of the world in this little parable about the vineyard and the tenants and the master and his servants. And uh, it's a very powerful little story. And in this story, we see that um, three parts to the story of the world. And this is what the three parts are. That first, God made a good world. Second, Humanity has rebelled against that good God. And third, so God sent his son into the world to make all things right. Three-part story. Which, by the way, actually, just last night, I was watching that new movie, Goosebumps, with my kids. If you've seen that, it's a story about all these monsters that attack this little town. And, uh, it's a st- and in the story, there's this author, R.L. Stein. And in the end of the story, he, you know, he has to kind of, he, his story writing is a big part of the movie. He says that every good story has three parts to it. The beginning, the middle, and the twist. Those are the three parts. And so we have three parts to our story. The first part, the beginning, that God made a good world. The, second, the middle, that humanity has rebelled against that good God. And then the twist is that God sent his own son into the world to make all things right. So those three parts of the story we're going to talk about this morning. And before I get started, let me just um, make one comment. Because Jesus' parable is um, it's not properly about the world as a whole. Actually, Jesus is telling a story about Israel. The, the, you know, in the book of Isaiah, Israel was called a vineyard. And so when Jesus uses the image of a vineyard, he's talking about Israel. And so when the master of the house sends the servants, those are the prophets that God had sent to Israel in the Old Testament. And the tenants who are taking care of the vineyard are the religious leaders in Jerusalem at that time who are now going to kill the son. And so this is a story about Israel. But Israel's story in the Old Testament is a little microcosm of the story of humanity as a whole. Because anyone who thinks about the Old Testament in a vineyard, you say, yeah, you know, you go back to Isaiah 5, yeah, there's a vineyard talking about Israel. But there's a vineyard even further back in the Old Testament. This is all humanity was first created in a garden where there were fruit. And so the story of the vineyard is both the story of Israel, but it's also the story of humanity. And so that's how we're going to uh, look at this parable together this morning. So first, first act of the story God made a good world. 
And the way God is first described in this parable is as a master of a house who is setting up a vineyard. You see that there in verse 33. I love how this starts. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. And I love this picture of God. God is setting up this vineyard. I love him out there, you know, digging the fence. He's making the fence. He's hammering stuff. And he's digging up the, you know, the well and, and everything. And he's getting everything set up so that he can invite these people, uh, humans, to come live in this vineyard for them. And the, world, what, the way that this, this, the vineyard describes a world for, the world for us is how we should see the world is, first of all, it's a place of creativity. Right? What's supposed to happen in the vineyard? Is you're supposed to produce something. You're supposed to produce fruit. You make wine out of it. You make, you know, and it, it's a creative, productive place. But also the way God makes his vineyard is it's a safe place. There's fences around. There's a tower, you know, looking out for enemies and things like that. But it's also a pleasurable place. There's a wine press there. God envisions that he's making a world set up for us to be creative like him to feel safe, and to enjoy the pleasures of his good creation. That's the image of God in these verses, making a good world like that. And, you know, I'll tell you, as I was writing this sermon on Tuesday, I was sitting down at Woods, down on Boulevard. I had one of those tables where you can look out the window and you see the bay. And Tuesday was, if you remember, it was a beautiful day. And everyone's out. You know, people are buying coffee. They're walking around. They're riding the bikes. Kids are playing. And there's boats out on the bay. And you see the islands. And it's just this glorious, majestic day. And what this whole vision, you know, when you're down at Boulevard on a beautiful day and everyone's out and they're enjoying each other, that whole vision is just supposed to sing to you of the goodness of God. This is the kind of world God makes. He makes worlds like this where people are playing and they're being creative and making coffee and they're serving each other and they're enjoying one another. And it, just, it, it sings to us of his wisdom and of his beauty. Now, increasingly in our culture, we don't hear the song coming from that vision. And actually, I've been reading a book recently called A Secular Age. It's this big 900-page kind of sociological study of the last 500 years in uh, in the North Atlantic, in in the Western world. And what the author, the question that the author is asking is, why was it that 500 years ago, if you lived in, you know, Western Europe or, you know, or later in North America, the default belief was that there was a God who made all things and that we exist for his glory and that the Bible is true. So if you lived in that world, you just kind of by default believe that. You know, you could believe something else, but, you know, you'd really have to work to believe something else. But now, 500 years later, in that same culture, the default thing is to believe that the Bible's wrong. There's not necessarily a God. And you could believe something else. You could believe the Bible's true, but you really have to work at it. I mean, for all of us to believe that the Bible's true, we really have to think a lot about it. And we have to think, how can I, as a modern person, believe that the Bible's true? And we have to work it out. It's much harder in our culture to believe that the Bible's true. And what uh, Charles Taylor's author says is that over the course of these 500 years, um, people living in the Western world have experienced what has been called disenchantment. The symbolic meaning and glory of the universe has faded. And the more we say, there's no God, we are all just a collection of atoms that have randomly formed into living organisms, the more we say that, the more life in the world has seemed meaningless to us. There is a deep despair 
Finding a reason for living, finding meaning in life, is becoming very fragile. It's very hard to, make, to be sure and have a sense that life really means something. And so even important moments in our life, in our culture, are, are, don't have the weight and awe that they used to. You know, even having a child or marriage or deep friendship, all these things that were momentous previously and had this profound weight and glory to them, we don't have. And even everyday life, you know, our jobs and our work and our interactions with our family just feel utterly flat. And so the Bible begins its story by screaming at us to wake up and say the earth is singing with the goodness of God if you will only have ears to hear it. The earth is declaring to us God's love and glory. Will you listen to him? And so the first part of the story of the world that the Bible tells is that God made a good world. You are living in the vineyard made by God. But you know, most, uh, now most people in Bellingham may resonate with that. You know, the, the earth, you know, Bellingham Bay, the islands... You know, the mountains, the place for me to play. And so for, you know, many people in Bellingham would say, you know, that's why I would say my church is up on the mountain. My, my experience with God is up on the mountain. But, you know, this parable tells us that there's more to God's good world than playing on the mountain. And you look at the second half of verse 33. Look at what the second half of verse 33 says. It says that he makes a vineyard and he leased the vineyard to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. So what this passage tells us is that God makes a vineyard, and it's not simply for us to enjoy, but we're supposed to make something out of the vineyard and offer it back to God. And so part of living in the world is not simply that we enjoy the goodness of living in God's world, but we receive God's good green earth, and then we transform it and make it into something that we offer back to God as a gift of love. So he makes something and gives it to us, and then we make something and give it back to him. It's this exchange of a love relationship. And the things that we make, we make all kinds of things as humans. We make cultures, we make music, we make businesses and families and churches and cities. And this is all fruit that we give, that we're meant to give to God's glory. He creates to give to us And he wants us to become like him where we create and give back to him. And it's a love relationship of receiving and enjoying and then giving back out of gratitude and service. And so because the world is the context for a love relationship with God, that means that one of the most important fruits that God wants from us in the vineyard is the fruit of loving our neighbors as ourselves. Right? We love God. And he wants us, therefore, to love each other. That's the most natural thing. And this is a real challenge in Bellingham. Because the reason why, you know, why is the mountain so serene? You know, when you go up there and you go hiking, and, you know, there's Shuxin and the glacier, and it's so beautiful, and, and the meadows with the, the, the flowers, the wildflowers up there, if you go up there, in, you know, in the summertime. And it's so beautiful, and it's so refreshing But the reason it's so serene and refreshing up there is because there are no neighbors up there. That's precisely why we go up there, is to get away from our neighbors, to get away from the people, because it's neighbors, it's people around us that make life so frustrating, so difficult, and so hard, and there's no people, it's just quiet. And that's one of the reasons why God says the the place that we meet him, the most important place to have that relationship is not up on the mountain, but it's actually in a room like this. There's all these faces of neighbors. 
It's, of course, in many ways a lot harder to love God and walk with God here than on the mountain. But also there is a glory, a beauty displayed in the face of your neighbor that is not even close to displayed in Mount Baker. And so um, this is the setting of the story, is that God gives us a good world, and we give him fruit back from that world, and we do that particularly by blessing and loving one another. But as we recognize, you know, most of us living in God's world, we don't experience it like this. Wow, I mean, that sounds great. God's beautiful world, you know, that we receive and we enjoy, and then we create things and we give it back to him, and we bless our neighbors and love our neighbors, and we hardly experience life like that. And so the second part of the story of the world is not simply that God made a good world, but why, as humans, do we not experience it like that? And this is the second act, you might say, is that humanity has rebelled against that good God. Humanity has rebelled against that good God. Now, whatever story you believe about the world, we all have a story that we tell about understanding our lives in the world. It has to have a substantial explanation for what's wrong with humanity. What is wrong with me? I mean, I I think anyone who's thinking carefully about the world is going to say there's something wrong. There's a certain way that we're supposed to live together, and we're not doing it. What is the reason for that? And the Bible's explanation that humanity has rejected God, I think we have to accept is a perfectly reasonable explanation. Humanity has rejected her creator, and that's why we don't function properly. And so what does this rebellion against God look like? Well, in this passage, this rebellion looks like a couple things. First, this passage says that we don't listen to God. Rebellion looks like not listening to God. And you see this here in verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants uh, took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, And they did the same to them. Now, specifically, what Jesus is saying here is that God sent prophets in the Old Testament to Israel. Israel was uh, disobedient to the Lord, and they they were sinning, and they were chasing after other gods. And God sent to them prophets to speak to them about his covenant, about his love and his faithfulness, and also calling them to repentance, to warn them about what will happen if they turn away from the Lord. And what happened was Israel in the Old Testament refused to listen. They had stubborn, hard hearts and said to God, don't you dare speak to us. We don't want to hear what you have to say to us. And the Bible says that to all of us, God has spoken in three ways. God has spoken to us through his creation. You know, God made this beautiful world that sings to us of his glory and his goodness and his wisdom and his power. And, uh, And the Bible says that we don't want to listen not only to creation, but God has also, of course, spoken to us in the Bible, which is an amazing thing, that God has given us this great book that you could spend a lifetime studying, filled with wonders about all the complexities of who God is and his character and the deeds that he's done in the world, and displays to us his glory. God has spoken to us, and then ultimately God has spoken to us in Christ, where Jesus is the final word of God, God saying, this is who I am. And all of us, to varying degrees, know what it's like to say to God, I don't want to hear what you have to say to me. All of us at certain points in our life, we know what it is to say, I don't care what you say. I don't even want to know. I don't want to listen. I'd rather pretend you weren't there. 
To not listen to someone is in many ways the purest form of hatred. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. You know, if you imagine a couple in a marriage, you know, if, you're, if your spouse is talking to you about something that you, you don't like or you disagree with, you know, it's one thing to either you know, respond and say, well, first of all, you know, I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to engage you. And at another level, you may really, it might ignite a lot of emotion. You get in an argument, you're going to hash this out, you're going to fight it out. But there's another level if you just say to your spouse, I don't even care what you say. I, I just don't even want to listen to you. I don't, I'm not even going to have the conversation. I, I'm not even going to argue with you. I'm not even going to get upset. I'm emotionless. I'm indifferent about this. It's a whole nother level. It's worse than anger. It's worse than fighting. The purest form of hatred is indifference. And um, what is amazing is that we all have the capacity to receive from God life, food, friendship, work, pleasure, provision, being alive in his world, and we can completely ignore him. It's not even that I, I'm emotionally angry at God. I just don't even think about him. I'm completely indifferent to him. And so the first part of our rebellion is to simply not listen to God, which is essentially to hate God. And that, you know, that might be a, not, a new thought for you. Um, you don't think of yourself as capable of hating God. You know, I don't hate God. Indifference is hatred. But the second way our, we show our rebellion against God is not only that we refuse to listen to him, but second, we think that we are God. And, you know, that's the main thing in this passage about the tenants. You know, they've taken over the vineyard as their own. The master house makes this vineyard. He says, hey, I want you to, I'm going to give it to you to work in, and I'm going to get fruit from it. And they're like, you know what? I don't think this is your vineyard. I think this is going to be our vineyard. And if you send your servants who are going to ask for us for payment or, you know, a return on our life in your vineyard, we're just going to kill them. Because we want control. We want to be masters over the vineyard ourselves. Now, um, they don't see that the vineyard is something that's been entrusted to them. And that's often how we don't see the world. We don't see the world as something that's been entrusted to us. We see it as something that belongs to us. And, you know, for average Bellingham person, this is, in, in one way, is that we're very much like the tenants in this story. We say, I will enjoy the abundance of God's beautiful vineyard, but don't you dare expect anything back from me. As long as I'm not hurting anyone else, I can do what I want with my life. Which is to say, my life in this world does not exist for God. It doesn't exist for God's glory. It exists for me. And I am God over my own world. Now you might think, you know, why is that such a terrible thing? To live in the world and say, you know, I'm God over my own life. I have control. I make decisions over my own life. I don't, as long as I'm not hurting anyone else, what's the big deal? Um, well, I heard an illustration recently that might be helpful. Um, why does God have a right to demand something back from us? Um, imagine, uh, imagine a young man who's uh, growing up in a home with a, a single mother. And this single mother is working two jobs to try to care for this son and to provide for him, to give him a safe home, to give him everything he needs. And actually, over the course of his childhood, she's been saving up, working, um, so that she can send him to college. And when it comes time for him to graduate, he's going to go to college. She says, you know, son, I want to send you to college. I want to bless you. I'm going to pay for your college. And all I want you to do is I want you to promise me that you're going to be a good person, that you're going to work hard, 
and that you're always going to tell the truth. Promise me that. The son says, all right, mother, thank you, and I promise I'll do those things. And he goes to college, and, you know, he, he does everything that he's supposed to, and, and he graduates, and he has a successful life, and he starts a new family, and, you know, he was a decent guy, he worked hard, and he always told the truth. But he never called his mother again. He never went and visited her. Would you think that was okay? We would think that was really wrong. We would say he owes her a relationship. He better call her. He better know her. He better have a relationship with her. And that's our relationship to God. As God gives us this good green earth to enjoy and to receive from him, we owe him a relationship because he has given us life. The reason why humanity is so selfish, bitter, depressed, violent, and lonely is because we as a race are in rebellion against our Creator. And we have denied God the relationship He has made us for. We do not want to listen to Him. We are indifferent to Him. We ignore Him. And we have made ourselves gods over His world over our own, and over our own lives. Now, I'll just tell you, at this point of the story, you're like, wow, okay, there's this good God who makes this vineyard of this world, and he makes humanity to live in it, and he wants them to enjoy it, and he wants to have a loving relationship with them, and he, gives to them, he creates and gives to them, and they create and give to him and give to each other, and they just completely destroy it. And you look at humanity, and you say, you know, we are at war with one another, we're selfish, we're bitter, we hold grudges, we're very slow to forgive, we're very slow to serve anyone else besides ourselves, and God is looking at seven billion people of a whole, you know, a whole race like this, I think it's perfectly reasonable that you come to this point in the story and God would say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to start over. I'm going to get rid of humanity. They're ruining my world. I don't think that would be unreasonable at all for God to do that. And yet, that's not what happens in the story. That's the twist. Is instead, this is the third act, is that God sent his own son into the world to make all things right. God does not rid the world of humanity, does not uh, come and even judge humanity. He first sends his son. And I, I love this here in verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. Now, of course, in this story, it's an incredible risk, right? Because the, uh, you know, the servants have been sent. The master has sent these servants. They have all been killed. And so finally, he's going to send his son. He says, maybe they'll listen to my son, but there's no reason to think that they're going to listen to his son if they haven't listened to the servants. And let me just say, if you've ever wondered, why, why do Christians say that Jesus is the only way to God? This part of the story is Why? Jesus is the Son. And even if we regard all the religious leaders in history, you know, whether it's Buddha or Muhammad or Confucius, they've all claimed simply to be the servants in the story. That's who they claim to be, is that we're the servants of the Master. None of them have even pretended to claim that they are the eternal divine Son of God. And the climactic moment in the story of this world that we are living in is that God's Son came to a rebellious humanity and He is giving a free offer of pardon to all people, all of rebellious humanity who have alienated themselves from God and from each other. He says, come 
and I will pay all your debts. You'll be forgiven, and you can be brought back in to fellowship with God and know him and love him and be a part of an eternal kingdom. And this parable says uh, that there are two possible responses to that offer that Jesus makes to all people. The first possible response is, of course, to reject him. You see this here, verse 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now what Jesus is predicting in these verses, this is the, the final week of his life when he's giving this teaching. He's been on a trip to the Passover in Jerusalem. A few weeks ago we saw him entering Jerusalem for this final week. And he's predicting that these uh, religious leaders in Jerusalem at, at the temple are, are actually going to kill him. He's predicting his death. And it becomes clear in this passage that there's going to be a portion of humanity who will reject God's son. Now, most people in our culture would say, you know, I, I reject Jesus, but, you know, it's not, it's not quite as extreme as this. You know, I think, you know, Jesus is great and all. I think he taught us to love each other. Um, I just don't believe he's the son of God. I don't believe that he has this eternal kingdom that is coming. Why should I believe that? And let me, um, let me just speak to that this morning, if you think, if that's kind of how you find yourself thinking. Because the Bible says that God's son would bring an everlasting kingdom that would outlast all the great civilizations of man. And actually, if you notice in this passage, um, in verse 42, where it, Jesus uh, said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And then down in verse 44, he says, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And you notice Jesus uses this image of a stone, which is the, this image of the stone comes from a number of places in the Old Testament. One is Psalm 18 that's quoted here. But another place is Daniel 2. And in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar is a king of Babylon has this dream that Daniel interprets for him. And it's a dream about all the great civilizations of antiquity, about the Babylonians and the Persians and the Medes and the Greeks and, uh, and the Romans. And uh, what the in, in the dream, da Daniel says that there is going to be a stone that is going to come and it is going to shatter all the kingdoms of the earth. They will all fade away. And on, in this one stone, there will be an everlasting kingdom that will be built. And Jesus is saying, I am that stone. It is on me a foundation of an eternal kingdom is going to be built. And the thing that's amazing is that all those kingdoms that during their time people thought would be unending, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, they've all ended. They're gone. And Jesus has established a kingdom, multi-ethnic, multinational. It is vital on every continent on this planet right now, this very morning. And it has been going on for 2,000 years where people have come to him and received the free offer of forgiveness and pledged to now love their neighbors themselves in dependence on God's grace. And this eternal kingdom in longevity, in size, is far greater than the United States of America. I mean, it's not even close. They don't even compare. It's, it's been around far longer. It has far more people in it. And its influence has been far greater. That is the kingdom that Jesus has been building and is present now. And so this is not just something that 
Jesus might establish in the future. This is something he has been building for 2,000 years, and it is a historical fact for us to face. And so when we reject Jesus and say, no, you're not the Son of God, no, you're not building an eternal kingdom, we had better make sure that we've done, looked at the data. And he should at least be taken seriously. And so then the question is, well, then what does it mean for me, if I don't reject him, what does it mean for me to receive him as the eternal son? And uh, you can see here in verse 42 where Jesus, it says, Jesus said to them, have you, uh, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, taken, that's taken away from the religious leaders in, in, uh, in Israel, and given to a people producing its fruit. And there is going to be a community that Jesus is forming that is a community of love. How do I become a part of that community? It is you must be loved first. This is one thing that we know about children. Right? Children only learn to love when they've been loved. You cannot be told, just go love your neighbor, go love and be kind. No, you need to be loved. Love fills your heart and then pours out of you. And you must be filled with God's love before you can love others and be a part of a community of love. And Jesus says, to receive him is to receive God's love. That God has paid for all my sins in Jesus on the cross. That God has embraced me as his child, as he embraces Jesus as his own son. He has brought me into his family. And when I have received that gift, I become a part of that kingdom. That's what he's calling us to this morning. And so my question for you is, what story defines your life? There is a story that defines your vision of the world, but also your individual narrative of who you are. Is it this story that the good God who made a good world has had a people that has rebelled against him, and that rebellion is in me. And so he sent his son to begin to set all things right by gathering a people into a community of love. Have you been brought into that community? Or is your story that I'm my own God, and I don't want to listen to what God has to say to me? Jesus, in this parable, bids us to trust him the eternal Son of God, the twist to the story of the world. Let's pray together.